Welcome to the Gray Matter Podcast. This podcast is all about helping you think deeply about God, the Bible, and life with Jesus. If you're new here, my name is Gray, and I am a pastor serving in full-time ministry, and I started this podcast as a way to just start some more online conversation about these gray areas of faith. Right now, I'm in the middle of what I'm calling Season 2, Sermons for a Post-Christian World, How to Follow Jesus in a post-Christian culture. And I'm pulling sermons that I've preached over the last year at my church, Forestal Church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And I'm sharing them here because I think they um, together can paint a picture for what it looks like to follow Jesus in this current cultural reality. I shared in the first episode of the season that post-Christianity simply refers to the fact that in our culture in the West, yes, even in America, even in the Bible Belt where I serve, we are living in a post-Christian context, and that means people are growing up without a memory of shared Christian or Judeo-Christian values and assumptions about the world. There are things that used to be held as self-evident and true, even for people who weren't necessarily Christian, but that were based on a Christian perspective of the world, of how we define what's true, how we define morality, what's right and wrong. Now we are living in a post-Christian context, which simply means there's no longer a memory, and people are setting up culture in response to the formerly Christianized West. And so what we see now is what Mark Sayers would call is, um, we are building a kingdom, but without the king. We are building a culture that has the fruit of all of what Christianity was supposed to produce in society, but without the Christ of Christianity. And so that's what I'm referring to when I talk about post-Christianity, a post-Christian culture, and it has a lot to do with postmodernism and lots of other things which we can talk more in depth on in other episodes. But for now, I just want to set it up that way. And in previous episodes, we've talked about what it looks like to pursue truth, and I talked about how it first begins with our heart posture, a posture of humility and fear before the Lord. That's what Proverbs tells us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I then, in episode two, talked about how true freedom is not freedom from restraints, which is the cultural pursuit. It's freedom from all external restraints, freedom to simply be yourself. And I talked about how actually that freedom is not freedom at all, but enslavement. And true freedom has to do with submitting yourself to the right restraints. And those restraints, I think, are found in Christ and in Scripture. And now we're going to move on from those to talking about something a little bit more practical, um, a category that we might call ethics or how we live, how we define what's the good life or the bad life, what's moral, what's immoral. And we're going to be talking, um, I'm sharing a message from um, that I preached at Forest Hill from a series we were doing in Second Peter, just walking uh, verse by verse, passage by passage. And uh, so I'm going to be working from uh, a passage that Peter gives us in Second Peter, and we're going to see that he has a lot to say, yes, to his first century culture, but man, it's incredibly applicable for us now in our cultural setting. So I hope this is helpful for you as you consider how to have a vision for godly living.
And so as we stand, I'm gonna read in our next passage that we're gonna be digging into today from 2 Peter. We're in chapter one. We're gonna start in verse three and four, but our passage that we're gonna focus in on begins in verse five. So let's turn our attention to God's word. This is what it says. It says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. And this is where we're gonna home in a little bit. For this very reason, because of what we just read in verses three and four, because of these great promises, because God has this divine power that he's given us, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. It's pretty evident today that our passage has to do with this idea of living a godly life. And as we'll see, as we think about our character, as we think about our Habits, as we think about the way that we live, all of these things that Peter wants us to make an effort to walk into are intricately tied to our vision. I don't know about you, I have horrible vision. I, um, I, I depend on contacts. If not for contacts this morning, you would all just be one massive blur. And I, I could see like this close, I'm nearsighted, right? Or short-sighted to use this word. I'm, I'm nearsighted, so right here it's like great. I know all the, palm, the lines on my palms, but I can't see any of you. So I'm grateful, and what I realize is that sight is something that, or clear vision, is something you take for granted all the way up to the point where you lose a contact lens, or, or when you have a scratch or a cracked lens in your glasses, right? Those of you who um, depend on corrective lenses like me know what that's like, because, because you don't realize how much your vision impacts everything else. My parents, about 15 or 20 years ago, um, both got LASIK eye surgery to, to correct. They, I come from a long line of bad eyes, apparently. And my parents both got this surgery. They were so excited. And at that point, you know, 20 years ago, it was, I mean, they were making progress, but it wasn't anywhere near where it is today. Like, it wasn't as reliable. They didn't have um, all the progress. And so um, my mom's eyesight, fortunately, wasn't too bad. She got it, didn't have a hitch. It was great. Unfortunately, my dad's eyesight is way worse than, than even mine is. And so going into it, he knew this might be a little bit riskier than, um, than, than for my mom. He might still have to wear glasses or something like that, but he thought, why not give it a shot? And so he ends up having the surgery, and sure enough, he starts having complications. 
and he has to go back for more procedures because he's having irritation, his vision isn't good. I mean, there's some improvements, but then some other things were made worse by it. And he goes just through multiple years of dealing with having to get some things corrected, eventually has like a detached retina that comes from it, and gets that corrected. And, and what it ended up doing, at the end of all of this, is he would tell me, he said, when I, when I look at and I see people, they tell me my vision is good, but because of all the complications, it, was, it distorts what I see. And for a period of time, my dad, anytime he would look at someone, people's faces would be distorted, look like the, like the Coneheads, you know, like that movie. And ev so everyone he's, and glasses didn't fix it. And you can imagine how that affected him. You, you can imagine the frustration. The frustration, the hopelessness of like glasses can't even do, can't, can't even fix it. The doctors are saying, yeah, this might be like this for a while. And what ended up happening is my dad wasn't able to do some of the things the same way he could do them before. What ended up happening is um, he maybe got a little bit irritable through this season, and uh, he didn't know that I'm sharing this story, so he's gonna love it. But it changed the way he related to other people, it, it's, and it's because, it's because his vision was affected. Now, fortunately, over time, it, it all resolved, and so he's been living with good vision for a while now. But I think a point becomes glaringly obvious, and this is a point that I want us to put out there and hold on to for where we're going in this message and where I think Peter wants to take us. And it's this simple truth. It's that your vision has the power to determine the quality and direction of your life. Your vision and what you see has the power to determine the quality and direction of your life. Now clearly, I'm not just now talking about biological vision, although we can see the ways that that's true, but metaphorically, our vision, our perception, what some people would call a worldview, the lenses through which we see and perceive our reality, or in other words, our vision for what the good life is, the thing that we're looking to, the way that we are interpreting our world and our life, has the power to determine what our life looks like. And ultimately, ultimately, the things that we are beholding determine the people we are becoming. I think Peter, in giving us a list of attributes or qualities that he wants us to walk into, is gonna make this connection for us. But before we get there, we need to do a little bit of work. We need to dive in a little bit to understand this godly life that Peter is calling us into. And so I'm gonna make it simple for you note takers. Um, I've got three points that I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is the necessity of godly living. Then I want you to see the urgency of godly living. And finally, you'll see the promise of godly living. So the first point, the first point, when we come to this passage, we need to realize the necessity of godly living. Now, when I talk about the necessity of godly living, I'm talking really about two kind of separate but related ideas. So in the first way, when we talk about the necessity, we're asking the question, why was it necessary for Peter to include this list and this exhortation at the beginning of this letter in this place? Like, why was it necessary for him to give this to his people and then through those early contexts down the generations to us? What was happening that made this something that he had to teach? And what we're gonna see as we walk through 2 Peter is that in chapters two and three, he's about to come out 
hard on the offensive against some false teachers who were in these churches in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to. And Peter is coming to demolish these false teachers. I mean, there's no better way to say it. I mean, he's about to punk these guys in the way that he's talking about, one, the lies that they're sharing, but then also the lives that they're living. And he's giving this teaching as a direct confrontation of the false teachers. You say, well, what, what was it that they were spreading lies about? What, what was it that was primarily false in their teaching? Well, as we'll see, these false teachers were trying to convince these churches that really there was no final judgment that was coming. And as a result, because there's not gonna be a day where you have to give account for your life, you can do whatever you want to in the here and now. And, and these false teachers who were claiming to be following Christ, but who were saying, there's no judgment, we just eat, drink, be merry, let's just do our thing, we're doing just that. And they were living in a way that was the complete opposite of these attributes that Peter gives us, goodness, self-control, knowledge, endurance, brotherly affection, godliness, love. And so, on the one hand, we need to see there, there was a specific false teaching, and we're gonna hit that in detail in a couple weeks. We're going through verse by verse, passage by passage in this book, which means we get to talk about all the fun things like final judgment. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be really feel-good messages. Bring your friends. And we're gonna go in deeper in talking about that. But, but what I want to bring, because that's in the context, that's in the background of, of why Peter's giving us these words now. And so I think it's important that we recognize this and see how it affects our understanding of these attributes. You know, the reality is when we talk about the necessity of these godly attributes of godly living contra false teachers, we have false teachers in our day and age too. You know, false teachers didn't just live and die in the first century. They, they live in the here and now. And the hard thing about false teachers is a lot of times they don't come out and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. And that's what makes them so hard to confront and get out of. I think for many of us, if what Peter is getting at here is, you know, Paul would use the language of the fruit of the spirit. I think what many of us face in this day and age culturally is the fruit of secularism, the fruit of a culture that's moving further and further away from these attributes. And the thing is that's tricky is that we might see some connectivity on the surface to some of these things, but there is a strong cultural current. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or more progressive side of things, socially, politically, theologically, or it doesn't matter if you're on the right. These are under, underneath all of it and impacting the way we live and the way that we pursue what we see to be the good life. And so if you think about these attributes, you know, if the first one is goodness, or the Greek word really means virtue, it's this idea of inner excellence, moral purity that emanates outward into generosity towards others. If that is the ideal that we, um, is part of reflecting the divine nature that we're supposed to walk into, that virtue, what we see in culture, this counterfeit, is this idea of virtue signaling. It's this idea that it doesn't really matter what's happening on the inside. It, what matters is that you give the appearance that you are on board with whatever the moral issue is, depending, again, on your side of the coin. This is how we get to modern-day Pharisees who look really good on the outside, but on the inside are whitewashed tombs. That's how we get there. And it's, 
virtue versus virtue signaling. But think about knowledge. Peter calls us into knowledge, and this knowledge that he's calling us into is defined by something that's outside of us. He's talking about knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's, he uses this language over and over and over again in these first 11 verses, the idea of knowledge of God in Christ. It's external to us. Well, in culture, it's not so much about finding a knowledge and growing a knowledge that's outside of us. It's about uncovering a knowledge that's inside of us. It's about being true to yourself. It's about uncovering the you that's maybe been buried down and that you need to free and let go. It's an interior journey that you're after. Think about self-control. The Greeks in this culture would see self-control as a cardinal virtue. In fact, they would say it's the gateway into growing in any of the other virtues because if you don't have self-control, if you can't control your desires or your passions, there's no way you're gonna grow in any other virtues. And so we see self-control and discipline as fruits of the spirit that we need to actually control this evil desire. Remember verse four, he says, there's corruption in the world because of evil desire. What what is self-control? It is controlling sinful evil desire. Well, in culture, we don't have self-control, we have self-expression. And so it's not about seeing some desires as evil that we need to control, but it's saying if you have these desires, they're good and you better express them. Do you see that you're catching some of the differences here? And we don't, we don't have endurance in our culture. The Greek word there, again, it literally means to sit patiently under a heavy load. It means hopeful, patient waiting under pressure. Well, we don't have that in culture. We have, we have an idea of maybe tolerance where you just tolerate enough until it um, gets in the way of whatever it is that you wanna do. And that's when we cancel people. Again, right Left, doesn't matter. We don't endure through hardship. We get whatever it is that's causing hardship out of our way. Think about godliness or devotion. The Greek word there actually is talking about piety. It's about giving to God what he deserves. It means a heart that's seeking to please him above all else. We don't have that in our culture. We have the idea of um, the, the true God is yourself. And so you give yourself the devotion and we have twists on a good call to self-care, which would say the best and only thing you could do is to care for yourself. What about brotherly affection? The Christian ideal is to love one another in Christ on the basis of nothing else other than the fact that we have a same faith. One Father, one Spirit, one baptism. And on that basis, we're supposed to love each other like siblings. Now some of you are thinking, if I love people like my siblings, it's gonna be a scarier world than it is right now. Well, don't use that as your example. Use the ideal. The ideal is that in your family, you love each other. You stick with each other. We don't have that in our culture. What we have is something similar. It's a counterfeit, and it's more about a tribal affinity. We, we lock arms with anyone who shares our ideological um, fancies, whatever it might be. We don't have love. We have a counterfeit of love. The word here is agape, it means God's love. It means a love that is self-sacrificial, that lays down self for the good of the other. We use the word love in culture, but we don't really mean love, we mean, we mean acceptance. And I will love you so long as you accept me. We, we have just as many counterfeits as Peter's original audience, and so the necessity of a godly life is to say, first and foremost, we need to be able to recognize what's out there, 
confront it and realize what are the actual attributes and components about what it means to share in this divine nature. Who is God? What is his character like? How is he good? How is he virtuous? How is he under control and ordered? How is he full of knowledge that we need? And we pursue to grow in that. Students especially, students especially, it is important to recognize these differences. So that's the first necessity, but the second necessity comes from recognizing who he's talking to. You see, Peter here is talking very clearly to Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you say, you know what, I've never really made a decision to follow Jesus, I'm kind of checking things out. Uh, we're so glad you're here, and this is good. This is, this is maybe gonna be fun for you because this is gonna be like a really uncomfortable message for all of us who are Christians. Just if you, if you didn't know that's where this is going, Peter didn't really leave me a choice this morning. But he's talking to Christians, people who have already put their faith in Jesus, people who, we would say, are already saved. So when he says, make every effort to walk in these qualities, he's not saying, do all these things so that you can be saved. He's saying, do all these things because you've been saved. He's talking about sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus, not salvation. And, and the point that we need to see is that for, for too many of us, for too long, we have separated the grace that saves us from the grace that motivates us towards holy living. Many of us who grew up in the church have no concept of how we could be saved by grace, but then how we could also be commanded to walk and live in this way. For a lot of us, we have a hard time making sense of it. But what we need to see is that grace, that, that knowledge of having Jesus as your Lord, have, of having been saved from the corruption in the world, again, verse four, is that there's a catalytic, uh, catalytic moment, a catalytic experience, a substance, a grace from Jesus himself that's supposed to be like a change agent in our lives. Once you experience it, you're not supposed to be the same. Dallas Willard would say it this way, and I really like the way he says it. He would say, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Effort is action, earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. If you only knew the level of his grace and the amount that you've been forgiven, it wouldn't leave you just to live life as however you please, but it would propel you to walk in these ways. And so we see the necessity of faith is simply this, to be a believer is to walk in these things. To be a believer is to walk in these things. And it's not just to walk, but it's to walk in urgency. And it leads us to our second point. I don't just want you to see the necessity of godly living, but we need to grasp this morning the urgency of godly living. Think about verse eight. Peter says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, notice he's talking to believers, but it's hypothetical. It's not guaranteed that if you're a believer, you're going to possess these qualities in increasing measure. If you have these, if you're growing in these, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what becomes apparent here is that there is a sense in which you might have faith in Jesus and yet if you're not growing in these qualities, you are actually useless and ineffective. 
As I studied this, I had the thought, what does it mean to be useful and effective? Like, what is God using as an assessment tool to say, are you doing a good job? Are you being fruitful? Are, are you being effective in this? And this is where two points become really clear. The means that God uses to show us if we're being useful or effective are two things. The great commandment, which is to love God and to love others. And secondly, the great commission, which is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. You see, these two things, this great commandment, love God, love other people, as you love God, it emanates outward, and as you're going and as you're loving, you're bringing people with you. You're telling people about Jesus, you're showing people Jesus through your life, people are coming to faith, people are growing deeper in their faith. The, those two things, those two things, hear this, those two things are the calling God has on your life. You say, you don't know me. You don't know what God's called me to do. I do. I do because he says it. He says that every believer is called to do these two things. And we do it in a billion different ways in our daily lives. But at the end of the day, our ultimate purpose that we're called to is to be loving God and loving others. And as we're doing that, making disciples of all nations as we go. And the question is, are you being effective in that? Are you being fruitful in that? And here's the key connection. Don't miss this. The key connection that he's making here is that the key to living a useful and affecting, effective life is living a godly life. He's connecting the way that we walk and make effort to grow in these qualities with our effectiveness in the great commandment and the great commission. And then you have to ask, well, practically, how do we do this? And this is where another connection comes in related to vision. And it's this. If the key to living a useful and effective life is living a godly life, well, the key to living a godly life is looking to Jesus. The key to living a godly life is looking to Jesus. I think it's incredible here that he actually sets up a category for us which says you might be saved and yet be missing the very purpose for which you were saved. And the way that you know how you're doing in that is if you are growing in these qualities of goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly love, love. You see, this is where vision comes in. As we keep reading from verse eight to verse nine, Peter says, the person who lacks these things, these qualities, is blind. Is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from their past sins. How does someone become ineffective and unfruitful in their knowledge of Christ? They cease to grow in these qualities. And how do they cease to grow in these qualities? Well, they stop looking to Jesus. When your field of vision becomes so short-sighted and nearsighted that you've forgotten the grace that you've been given, you've been granted this tremendous freedom from sin and evil desire. 
when you forget that, when you're short-sighted, when you lose sight of the bigger picture of what's happening, not just what's happening in your life, but remember what he's talking about. Remember where we're going in chapter two and three, the reality that there's a final judgment. When you lose sight of those things and you get so inward focused on just what's happening in your life, in your marriage, your relationships, what you want, the career ladder, whatever it might be, you lose sight of this, you become blind. And the antidote to be blind is to look and behold the right thing. We, we can't miss the urgency that comes in this because what Peter is ultimately teaching us is that if our effectiveness in the Great Commission and reaching others with Christ's message of grace and forgiveness of sins if that is somehow intricately tied to our growth in godliness, then that means the effort that you are taking or not taking to do that is actually affecting other people's outcomes in terms of that final judgment. You see, this is where godly living becomes less about just you and God and how you're following him, it certainly is that. It certainly is how you are abiding in a relationship with him. But there's an added layer. Your effectiveness of changing the outcome for those around you in your family, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, we have the ability through our good works, Jesus would say, that other people might see the light shining through us and glorify our Father in heaven. Your growth in godliness or lack of growth in godliness impacts what's gonna happen on the last day before the throne of God for the people that you live with, work with, that you see and pass on a daily basis. And that should bring this to a harrowing point that this is not just necessary for us, but this is an urgent appeal for us to say, we've gotta take this seriously, not because it's gonna save us, but, but God's grace, maybe through us growing in godliness, other people might see our lives and say, what is different? And, and maybe it's not gonna save us, our works don't save us, but maybe our works could be a part of helping save somebody else. Maybe, just maybe, God might use our growth in godliness to be that bridge to other people that we talk about here at Forest Hill, to be bridge builders, to help people experience dynamic life. We can't be bridge builders, Forest Hill Church, unless we are experiencing that dynamic life. And we don't experience that dynamic life unless we are making every effort to grow in goodness, virtue, endurance, self-control, knowledge, love. You say, well, Gray, this is kind of heavy. Tell me about it, I've been reading this and studying it for two weeks. You know what it's like to stand in front of a group of people and to tell them to walk in things that you yourself aren't walking in perfectly? That's hard, it's a hard message. And I think one key that we have to remember here that's helpful is we have to remember the man who's writing this message. You see, Peter, Peter wasn't exactly early on the exemplar of all of these qualities. And if you'll remember, if you know the story, in the moment of Jesus's most trying time, in a courtyard arrested, being accused of lots of things, 
crowds chanting, crucify him. In the midst of this, in the same courtyard, Peter is sitting there watching, and he has an opportunity after being asked, aren't you one of this man's followers? Didn't you travel with him? And it's the moment where where Peter should have stood up for what his friend, the the man that he's been walking with, living his daily life with for three years, and he should have said, yes, come on, man, this is, I can't leave him on his own, I'm, I'm with him. Or just as a master, I mean, he had been following him as his teacher. He thought he was the Messiah. He proclaimed that. But, but he doesn't do that. He, he cowers under the pressure and three times in a row he denies any association with Jesus. And you can imagine the shame. I mean, the scripture tells us that Peter weeps after doing this. He failed. Not only was he covered with shame, but you know what shame leads us to do sometimes? Shame leads us often to return back to our old habits. It often leads us to go back to the old way of life. And that's exactly what Peter does. He goes back to the fishing boat. And when the resurrected Jesus comes, he finds him in a fishing boat, taking up the nets that he was told to put away so that he could go be a fisher of men. And he's picking up the old thing And Jesus calls him forward, and he doesn't condemn him, but he gives him grace. And can you just imagine what Peter felt in that moment as he stared across at his risen Lord that he had just denied, and the shame and the the guilt, and for Jesus with grace in his eyes to look at him, and to not condemn him, but to forgive him, and to not just do that, but to then give him a calling, to restore him, to say, You still are Peter, Rocky. You're the one who I'm gonna build the church upon, your confession. You have purpose. I can only think that that left such an indelible mark on Peter that by the time he's writing this as his farewell address, he's on his way to be executed. He's older in years, 30 years later. I have to think that as he's remembering the significance, the necessity, the urgency of walking in godliness, he, in the back of his mind, is just saying, guys, it's worth it, I promise. He's saying, I've seen it myself. I've seen the grace that comes in and that can change. And I can just see Peter coming out of a place not of demanding and commanding, but out of a place of just saying, guys, I promise. It's hard, but it's good, and it's worth it. Is it worth it to us to lay down other pursuits, to make this our primary pursuit, to look to Jesus? Here's the thing. When you look, the more you look at Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. And and, and the more that you emulate Jesus, the more you begin to exalt Jesus. And the more you begin to praise Jesus, the more you begin to pass on Jesus. It all comes back to this first and primary point. Have we lost sight of this grace in Jesus? And that leads us to this final point I wanna leave you with. It's the promise of a godly life. The promise of godly living. Really, it's multiple promises, but I'll give you a few This is what Peter says in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort. He said it twice. You know, when the Bible repeats something twice, they're doing it for emphasis. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, here's a promise, you will never stumble. 
For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Here's three promises. Three promises as you grow, when you grow, you will fall into sin less and less. As you focus on intentionally making these efforts to grow and reflect and to share in the divine nature, as Peter says, you will find yourself sinning less and less. Now, now some of us have the bad habit of focusing only on our sin struggles. And friend, what I want to say today is embrace again the grace that Jesus has for you. Remember the cleansing of your past sins and walk and focus on these attributes. Look at Jesus. Look at his life in the Gospels. Begin looking at how he lived, how he ordered his life, the way he went away and prayed, the way he interacted with others, and start to emulate him. And as you emulate him, find your eyes and your vision lifted beyond just the context of your daily life. Remember high school baseball, I would inevitably get in slumps, as all baseball players do, hitting. I remember going to the plate, and I'd get up, and in my mind, the whole time, I'd be thinking, don't strike out, don't strike out, don't strike out. And guess what I did? Struck out. Every, every time I went with that mindset, it was like, I was done for. But when I started going up thinking about, all right, hands to the ball, just make contact, just make contact. Focusing on the positive is what allowed me to move forward. For some of you this morning, you need the reminder of the grace of Jesus over your life. You've been trying on your own power. You've been trying to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, right? You've been white knuckling it and just trying to do better. And you need to shift the focus from yourself to Jesus. Others of you have been trying and you're not getting burned out, you're not hurting because you've actually been doing a, a decent job and so you're getting boastful. And what you need to do is you need to turn the attention off yourself, don't be short sighted, and you need to look to Jesus. And others of us have just been idle. And it's time to recast our eyes again on Jesus. The second promise, when you grow, your future entry into the eternal kingdom, into heaven, it also grows. The way that Peter says it is that entry into the eternal kingdom is richly provided for you. Now somehow in a way that I don't truly understand very well, even though we are saved and brought into that kingdom on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, there is still yet honor and glory that God gives us on the basis of how we live our lives as extra aspects of grace that he pours on us. There is, a, there is honor that comes with pursuing these things, and I think that's in view, but I think something else might be in view as well. Because I think about the way Paul would talk about some of the churches that he wrote to. He would say things like this. He would say to the Thessalonians, he'd say, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. He would call the Philippian believers his joy and crown. He would say that the Corinthian believers were his reason for pride in the day of our Lord Jesus. I think there is an aspect when we live a godly life and we're useful and effective and we are bringing people with us that to have a richly provided entry into heaven, into the kingdom of God means 
that we're not going in solo. It means that as we enter in this eternal presence of Jesus, that we have an entourage of those who we have had the opportunity of leading along in faith as well. Can you imagine that vision? Can you imagine the vision of, of going in solo just by yourself and thinking, I mean, it's still gonna be awesome, but what if? Or imagine walking in surrounded by the people that you love. Imagine walking in surrounded by neighbors and coworkers, maybe some people that you don't currently love. Imagine the rich provision of that entry. It's all connected to how we make effort in this godly life. And then finally, the beautiful thing about God is that God always supplies what he demands. And verse three tells us this, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. You have everything you need to do this. Everything. You have everything you need to walk in goodness, to walk in self-control and knowledge and endurance and godliness and brotherly love and love. And the way that you do it is you set your vision beyond yourself. You see Jesus with grace in his eyes saying, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. You, you see the one who is saying, I have all power and authority and I am with you. You see the one who sacrificially gave his life, who lived all of these qualities. And as you set your eyes on him and behold him, you will become like him. So is your life reflecting the fruit of secularism or the fruit of the Spirit? I think that's the question that every believer right now has to ask. We have to ask ourselves, do we believe in the necessity of godly living? Do we sense the urgency of godly living in this calling that we have as believers to go and to make disciples? Do we see the relationship between how we live and our ability to make disciples? And finally, do we believe the promises of godly living that Peter, Jesus, and the rest of Scripture lay out for us. I hope that you will be encouraged by this message today to set your eyes fully on Jesus and to so be transformed and to go and then make every effort to live in accordance with who he is. Well, thanks again for checking out the podcast today. Please don't forget to subscribe and also to leave a review if you have found this podcast helpful at all. It also helps for you to share this with your friends, family, Facebook, Instagram, neighbors, whoever, whoever you think could benefit from listening to this podcast. The reason why I tell you and remind you to do this is because we are a new podcast and it helps tremendously um, for these podcast providers um, to elevate the show in searches as people are looking for content on these different subjects. Uh, because it's a newer show, it requires a little bit of traffic in order for it to be highlighted in searches as people are looking for things to listen to. And so the more you share, the more you listen, the more you subscribe, the more it helps other people get this content as well. So I'd be really appreciative if you would do that. 
But again, thank you so much for listening. We got some great content coming up around the corner. Season three is going to be um, some theological deep dives into topics about who God is and also about um, who he's called the church to be. And so there's going to be some great stuff coming and you'll want to be subscribed so you get that as it comes. Um, But that's enough for today. Thanks for listening to the Gray Matter podcast and we'll see you next time. Mm